0: With the pressures of making up for instructional time lost during the pandemic, combined with a never-ending barrage of social media and a 24-hour news cycle, it's no wonder student mental health has reached uncharted territory. Addressing this mental health crisis is crucial in order for schools to be happy and academically successful. But how can we collectively prioritize and improve student mental health within the school setting? I'm Nikki Alvarez, Content Marketing Manager at Better Lesson and former teacher And today I'll be joined by our esteemed guests, each bringing their own unique perspective to this conversation. We have Marie S. Hall, founder of Ruby Mac Learning Academy and former MTSS specialist. Andrew Vega, senior associate partner at New School's Venture Fund and former school administrator. And Dr. Tiffany Patton, chief consultant at results-driven educational consulting and former principal at all three K-12 education levels. Together, we're going to have an honest conversation about the critical landscape of student mental health and what tools we have at our disposal to address it. Let's dive in because understanding is a first step towards change. So thank you so much everybody for joining us today. Um, October is World Mental Health Month. So we thought that it would be a really timely discussion for us to talk about improving student mental health. Um, we're really hoping that you'll walk away with some action steps that you can start using today in your classrooms, your school, your district to really kind of help with our student mental health. So diving right in, I would love to talk about, you know, what the current state of student mental health is right now. Um, And if we feel like there's specific challenges that our students are facing today, especially considering we're in this post-pandemic world. Andrew, you want to kick this one off?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. I think we all know that student mental health needs are higher than they've ever been. Nikki, I think it's interesting, like you named post-pandemic, when really, like, we are now in sort of an endemic, right? Um, COVID is not out of the news, and that in and of itself can be an antecedent for both adults and students, depending on how you experience 2020 and 2021. And so those needs are particularly high. Um, something I really think about a lot are our students who were who experienced 2020 and 2021 in crucial transitional periods. I was a principal of an elementary school, and I'm thinking of the folks who joined us when they're three, and all of a sudden they are six, right? They are they go from early pre-K to kindergarten, or the students who skipped kindergarten altogether. And we continue to think about those transitional grades where we had freshmen in high school who were in high school for six months, and all of a sudden they are juniors, and it is the toughest. Highest stakes uh, time of high school, and they missed a lot of those really essential years where they built um, a lot of the social and emotional skills, a lot of the coping skills that align with the academic expectations that we have for students. Right. So, I think we, the obviously given NAEP scores, given what we know to be true about academic performance, uh, the focus tends to be really heavy on instructional and learning gaps. When we also need to think about what are the developmental gaps that also exist. Um, and what assumptions are we making about where students are developmentally in order to meet the standards of whatever grade level they entered post-pandemic? Um, so we know that virtual learning didn't necessarily acclimate students to gradually increasing expectations, gradually increasing stakes uh, over the course of their K-12. to A lot of schools, mine included, sort of had two weeks to just suddenly launch virtual and I don't know about other folks here, but we weren't even one-to-one tech. We had to figure out how we're getting all these students online. And I'm driving around hotspots and, and laptops. And, and all of a sudden have a unique insight into how our students are experiencing the pandemic. And and that that has not necessarily waned, right? We are still seeing the impact. These are students who have access to all the information in the world. So there is no real break for them to be able to take a step back. Um, and you pair that with the social emotional needs of staff. Um, how have adults experienced this time? What learnings have they come out with? We know there is a teacher shortage. We know um, that there's an administrator shortage. We know that, that folks are not able to navigate the profession the way that they used to. And ultimately, that does have an impact on student mental health. And we really need to think through um, how, how are we responsibly and intentionally ensuring that we both address the learning gaps while also meeting the unique mental health needs of our time, which many of us uh, we're not prepared for and could not see coming.
0: Yeah, I, I love that because there's so much focus post-pandemic on this learning loss. So I love that you're talking about, you know, how are we filling in the gap from that social loss? Um, Marie or Tiffany, do you have anything to add about the current state of things? Um, Andrew mentioned how
2: everybody was running around trying to respond to the pandemic, getting computers together, hotspots together, and, and many marginalized um, areas they didn't have any of those things. So um, many students weren't able to get online for a very long time, which caused a lot of students that be anxious, angry, depressed, Um, especially coming back into the schools after the pandemic. um, You could see students having feelings of hopelessness. Um, And I was reading an article recently where the U.S. Surgeon General called it the defining public health crisis of our time. So (laughs) that really struck me. And, you know, we already had crisis in schools with mental health, but now after the pandemic, post-pandemic, it's like really been brought to the forefront now. And so For me, I feel like we're in a state of emergency. When you look at everything that's happening in schools today, when you turn on the news and you see things happening, that impacts not only students, but uh, adults as well. Um, And because students spend most of their time in schools, Um, I believe as a society, we have a responsibility to ensure students are supported in schools with their mental health. And it's only going to get worse if we're not addressing it and uh, facing it and dealing with it head on.
0: Yeah, it's so true. I mean, the news cycle is 24 hours, right? And we've been in this heightened state of essentially panic since 2020. And it doesn't seem to have alleviated enough for us to take a deep breath and, and, and help our students. So given that student mental health is really at this, as you said, Marie, like emergency level, what can we do to help? I feel one of the first things we can do is kind of address how we identify potential students that may need this extra help. Does anyone have any suggestions there? I
3: can add on to that one. I think that uh, at least in the research that I've done as a part of my doctoral research, I did a lot of reading um, and analysis of Eric Jensen's teaching with poverty in mind. And we did a book study uh, on that text as a staff, and it talks about wraparound services and a share framework with the um, S in that framework representing supporting the whole child. And one of the recommendations that it makes is universal screening um, for every student in your school community. And I think that that is um, even though the book is connected to high poverty communities, I think because we are in this post pandemic state. That can be implemented across schools with all income levels um, because we do have such as Marie expressed an urgent concern. And my add-on to that initial conversation was just that before the pandemic, the suicide rate for adolescents and teenagers was on the rise and it' is, it's continued. It's escalated even more um, because of social media. Our kids were already dealing with how to socialize in this, atmosphere of social media where there is not a lot of etiquette. There's not a lot of structure and people can just kind of say whatever um, and hide behind anonymous profiles and all kinds of things. And so the pandemic just escalated all of that. So I think universal screeners uh, is essential. Another thing I know that uh, is important for screening and identification is having an opt-in process in your school where students can get to the counselor. They can communicate that, Hey, I need to speak to someone and they have a way that that can be done uh, anonymously if that's how they want it to be done and more so private instead of an open, you know, I have to raise my hand and ask the teacher, can I go talk to the counselor? So making sure that students know how they can get to the counselors in the school and the social workers to let them know that they need assistance is also key.
0: That's great. And for those that may not know, can you tell us what a universal screener is?
3: Yep. So a universal screener, um, there's several that are available that have been created. We used one that was connected to our PBIS system. And it's just a questionnaire that you send to all students and it asks them questions about everything from how they feel about their classes to how they feel about their social relationships. And it gives you um, a score that helps to indicate where your students are emotionally and possibly mentally, and you use that data as a school team to determine who do we need to have additional conversations with, or what additional school programming do we need to add, because it's not just a couple kids, it's our entire community. So that's the type of information or data you'll get back from a universal screener.
2: Um, I would like to add on to what, um, Dr. Tiffany was saying, um, because we use a universal screener as well, we use the BASC 3. And I look at that to identify students that may need supports, because we know that the key to mental health issues is to identify it early. Because if we are not identifying mental health issues with our students, then if it goes untreated, these problems can really disrupt children in their lives. And I think the screener is a great way to deal with that. And I think also teachers should be aware of students in their classroom. There are many signs that uh, students have when they come into the class that may be um, identifiers of mental health. Sometimes we diminish that there may be challenges with the student and just think that it's a behavior issue or they're being defiant, but it can be a result of them having a mental health crisis.
1: Yeah, I just want to add a couple things like one for the little ones. Um, So I was principal of a pre-k to five inclusion school. So uh, not only were we had a lot of younger friends, but a quarter of those students had moderate to severe disabilities, many of which came with limited communication skills. Um, some of the, all of our three year olds, they were receiving early intervention services. They came to school on their third birthday for the first time. So, um, when working with the smaller friends who, are, who may not be able to access a questionnaire that you sit and ask them with, uh, it's really important that you create time for teachers to do a sort mm-hmm. of observational data analysis, similar to how they would assess reading and letter and, and phonemic awareness, ask teachers to sit down and what observable behaviors are you noticing? Who is able to follow the group plan? Who is following directions the first time? Who is playing a develop, developing appropriate ways? Who might still be parallel playing? Who might have a really, really low ceiling for frustration compared to their peers? Um, This is a way to sort of get a sense of how the little ones are doing and figure out uh, what additional supports you might put in place. Uh, Something else I might offer, um, as a school, as someone who did this the wrong way, uh, when we came back from the pandemic, we did use a universal screener. It was a combination of one that we purchased and one that our counseling team designed on their own on a Google form. Uh, Shameless plug, you do not need to pay for a screener. I'm sure you have folks in your building who know what questions they want to know and you can send out a google form and it's just as if it gets you the information you need it's really effective um and in that screener we learned that in a school of over 600 kids over 80% were within one degree of separation from someone who had passed from covid given that the tremendously high impact it had on south la and we had this data and we're like oh now what so what i would recommend is having a clear strategy of what now, like, are we going to really focus on students who are tier three, tier two, who really have a lot more urgency? Do we have policies that we're prepared to adjust based on what students tell us? Because I think the trap we sort of fell into was we were not expecting it to be, we knew it would be challenging. We had no idea like the experience these students have and the students, the teachers, the parents are asking, well, we have this data now, what are we going to do with it?
0: Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I love your idea about Google Forms. I think just like Zoom after 2020, we're all very familiar with Google Forms. Um, Some Mm -hmm. people may be listening to this and thinking like, you know, this all sounds great. I would really love to do something like this in my school. But how are we integrating this into what we do day to day? Like, how are we making time for this? Who's doing this? And how are we paying for this? Tiffany, I know you have experience in this. I'd love for you to kick us off.
3: Yeah, sure. I can um, offer as another way of supporting student mental health. Um, And you do need staffing for this. So I'll tie that in as well. Um, we've had what we call the care team process and other districts I've worked in, they call I-team. Um, but it's a way of actually analyzing and talking about student behavior instead of using a discipline approach and pulling out the discipline handbook and saying, okay, you did this, so you get this. Um, it's more so let's sit down and see what this could indicate, what the behavior patterns could indicate. Um, we also utilize a protocol called Problem Solving with Function in Mind, which uh, helps to kind of be like a preliminary step prior to maybe identifying a student for uh, an IEP testing process or, or something of that nature. Um, because if a student has mental health challenges, we do need to, as Marie said, identify them early and make sure they have the proper supports um, but, of course, all of that requires staffing. And when I first got to uh, the high poverty school that I was leading, I had one counselor for almost 500 students and then one social worker. Um, and I knew that that was not sufficient. It was a disservice to children and an injustice. So um, I was unfortunate to have grant money um, because we were a Title I school. Um, and what I did was repurpose that money that was allocated for a lot of instructional coaching roles and additional instructional pieces over to mental health staffing. And so I cut, like there's a, there was a math coach position. I cut that and created another um, homeschool communicator role and hired another person for that. Um, I advocated very heavily with my school board for my students and asked them, please send another counselor. The counsel- I have one counselor. The state ratio is one to 450. We're almost at 500. We're out of compliance. So sometimes it's uh, that, too, like making a case to your upper admin and your leadership Uh, and asking them if they can help you out with the purse strings and open up a little bit more funding. And they listened and they did. And so as the years went on, I continued to add, as we got more title funding, I continued to add mental health staffing so that we could do um, the analysis on behavior. Because a lot of times what happens is we don't have the time and we turn to discipline because that's quick, easy, it's out of my hands now. Um, But that's not changing behavior that's containing behavior. And if we're going to Mm -hmm. support students, we really have to identify the needs that they have. Um, And I will add to that, another thing that that team was responsible for was tracking the amount of interventions we provided to every student um, that had repeat behavior concerns that we were seeing. And we had to have three interventions logged before we even talked about a discipline response. Intervention response was first, but you do
0: have to have the staffing to sustain that and be proactive. So you really were a huge advocate, and I guess it goes back to the need for administrators to really see that this is something that we need to focus on. It's more preventative. Marie, since you were an MTSS specialist, she sort of was touching upon behavior. Is there anything you can add in that arena? I'm sure she talked about
2: care crew. I think that is a fantastic thing to have. Um, We also had a care crew at my school and we had a SAT committee, school attendance committee. Um, So we worked in tandem with one another. Um, I think if you're not able to have an MTSS specialist, you definitely need to have a team of people that can collaborate with one another. To uh, look at uh, students' behavior infractions, uh, students that may be repeat offenders um, at your school, because there's always a few that are going to stand out. And so you want to be providing them with supports um, as. Uh, Tiffany mentioned, you don't just want to um, penalize students for behavior issues. You wanna actually get to the root of the problem. And in order to get to the root of the problem, now you have to bring in other people. Um, We actually use outside agencies. Um, We use communities and schools, and then we were partnered with other outside agencies that could provide additional counseling supports my previous school was pre-k through eighth with over 700 students and we only had two counselors at the school which is not enough Um, So what we essentially did was we developed a list of priority students, Uh, we kept track of those students on that list and who would support them, which counselors would support them, um, what interventions I would put in place for those students so that we could help them be not only academically sound, but also give them that social emotional support to help them with that academic support. Um, And I just want to point out that we need to be Uh, very intentional and consistent with our processes um, because students love consistency. um, And we want to ensure that we're doing those things on a consistent basis. And we're not just starting a process and then stopping a process because we don't have the time. So anything that we start, we need to consistently continue all the way through the end of the school year.
0: Yeah, I think consistency for sure, especially since some students don't receive consistency anywhere else in their lives, right? So a lot of times school provides that consistency really in more ways than one. Andrew, I'd love for you to talk to us. Since you have experience at the pre-K through fifth level and high school, are there things that we should be considering?
1: So obviously the number one thing is like the extent to which students are able to express their mental health need or uh the ways they might do that to to both of the other panelists points like their maladaptive behavior sometimes the best way i can communicate that i'm struggling is by not following directions by is becoming very dysregulated um so it's important at each level that that teachers have clear strategies in place and there's aligned policies on like how are we like how are we de- beginning conversations about behavior and about need with root cause versus immediately responding to consequences. When I led the elementary school, it was a very deep policy where like if a student, if you ever require requested administrative assistance, we did ask teachers to then sit in a debrief with one of us and like help me understand what was the antecedent, what was the root cause, um, how can we better equip uh, the classroom moving forward? And it really had everyone really being very intentional about how they were engaging with the younger students, really reflecting on like, what are my antecedents, really reflecting on um, to what extent, like can we reduce what we know is gonna make these students upset. And I think something that was particularly powerful in both settings was uh, ensuring that we're as aligned as we can be with students on the language that we are using to describe uh, behavior and to describe mental health. Um, To the earlier point, like, I've run both a district school and a charter school. And in the charter school, I had a lot more autonomy with staffing. In the district school, I had no autonomy with staffing. So I was not gonna bring in more counselors. I was not gonna adjust the staffing template to increase mental health. So it really became how can I use what limited unrestricted general funds I have to increase the capacity of the adults who are with these students all day. And what that looked like was getting really aligned on language, getting really aligned on key strategies, getting really aligned on when is this no longer something that happens in the classroom with the teacher? When does it become like external support for that room? So partnering with teachers to get really aligned on what is feasible for us as a school community, given what our real limitations are. And I think naming that really earns you credibility. Like we will not have the mental health staff we need to support students, period, this year here's what we do have here. We have a group of people who believe the same thing and have the same values. What are our non-negotiables? What are our limitations and how can we co-build this? So that was really important with the little ones. Um, As we got to the high school level, like involving student voice in that. We heard from students a lot, like my teachers are not equipped to handle my stuff when I put it out there, when we do our social emotional lessons, when we have circle, when they ask me questions like, And when a 16 year old is telling you, you are not ready for what I'm about to bring you, um, what else can we do? That really helped us then be more strategic about what that system looked like, what the staffing looked like. It, It made teachers feel much more empowered. to like if a student asks for help from someone else, like why is that a battle we're picking every time when the students are telling us who is equipped to support them and who is not? And how am I as a principal making sure those folks have more capacity uh, given that we that the students are telling us, here are the adults who are the go-to when we really need help. And and there, like we didn't have a social emotional learning curriculum, we didn't have the the block. To, often in high school, you're restricted with what you can do with your instructional minutes. Right? When I led an elementary school, sure, kindergarten, forty-five minutes a day to talk about how we use feeling words, one hundred percent. It was great. Not necessarily something we could pull off in the high school setting. There's always going to be extra needs that we cannot meet. But I think it did help us think through what can we do that is responsive to our highest Mm -hmm. needs students, while also being sustainable for adults in the building who are navigating their own lingering mental health needs as we exit this pandemic. And my school at the time was already understaffed, so they were covering prep periods. They were being asked to do more than they had ever been asked to do before. So it was really important to me that... We bring all those voices to the table to think through, like, what do we want to be true? How do we get there? And how do we make it sustainable? And it, it doesn't always have to be some $4,000 SEL curriculum that then you pay $50,000 for someone to come train you on. People mentioned book studies. Let's read Engaging Students with Poverty in Mind together. What are our takeaways from that? And how can we implement those together as a school? Um, and then you have a lot more buy-in from staff from the get-go because they were part of co-designing as, as well as students who... Who feel heard and know that it's something that we are prioritizing for them.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. That's a great point. That you know, some of these initiatives don't have to be these like grand, expensive initiatives. You can really do it as long as you're you know creative about it. Not to make you continue talking, Andrew, but you did touch upon SEL, social emotional learning, and I know that um, you have experience like piloting an SEL curriculum at the elementary level. Um, for those that maybe would like to do that in their school, can you give any advice?
1: Ours sort of happened organically. Uh, we used uh, a curriculum called social thinking. It's designed for students on the autism spectrum to help them navigate a language around feelings, to help them learn about um, matching the size of the reaction to the challenge they are facing. And our speech pathologist was using it with many students, and she found that they three, four, or five years old, were transferring the language to their classrooms with their typically developing peers. And she asked, like, you know, we have some other friends who, while do not have diagnosed disabilities, struggle with using their words to communicate what they need. Can I, br- can I bring them in? So from a small group pilot, it went to a single class pilot. And that was really important because, again, sustainability is very important to me. And we're not going to roll something out school-wide if we can't really, like, figure out what are we going to need and what supports are going to teachers need so we piloted it uh, in two classrooms out of 12 to see like can the teachers create the space for this what is the planning lift um, what are students disclosing and sharing that we may need to support as a result and you know i think with mental health our urgency like we really want to move we really want to go 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 as quickly as we can i think in this case like we had to be very patient to go slow in order to be able to go fast when we did the the full roll-up. We had parents um, uh, speak at the meeting where we tried to roll it out, whose kids had really latched onto the language. They were taking it at home, like, Mommy, your reaction is not matching the size of the problem. And these parents are like, Who is this five-year-old and what are they talking about? And and from there, like, creating the time and professional development. As I mentioned around capacity building, if we're going to do this, and this was a district school, I got one hour a month. And we really had to say, like, Do we think this one hour a month to roll out this language and to align and how we want to navigate this across grade levels? Do we think this is worth the worth the time? And do we think it's going to have the impact? And we engage teachers like, are we okay with doing this versus data inquiry? Are we okay doing this versus doing pre-assessment design? And at the end of the day, they felt like this was going to save them a lot more time in the long run uh, because they they were able to de-escalate students much faster. Students did have a lot more language. Um, So it took time, I'm not gonna say it was fast, it was maybe a year and a half until it was fully rolled out. But again, this was one teacher with an idea who was willing to train other folks in how to do it. It wasn't until we did it for a year and a half that we even bothered applying for a grant to even take it further. But I would say in that year and a half, we still saw tremendous successes and we wouldn't have seen that grant if we had not had those. So I think to like summarize, it's like piloting, like making sure it's sustainable and really equipping teachers to be the experts in leading the work, I think is what made it, what made it really successful. That's awesome, I I love
0: that so much. Um, Marie or Tiffany, do you have anything around the topic of SEL that you'd like to add?
3: Um, I can add on, we also implemented a um, social emotional curriculum called Zones of Regulation, which is focused on uh, helping students identify four different categories of emotions, and uh, we paired that with another curriculum called Calm Classrooms, which explicitly taught regulation skills. So Zones of Regulation helped them, gave them the language to identify this is how I'm feeling. This is either a blue feeling or a yellow feeling or a red feeling or a green feeling. Um, but we found that there was a need for them to then learn techniques to get themselves back to being uh green. And so we paired that with Calm Classrooms. That was a school-wide implementation. We had a daily um calm classroom block where everyone just stopped and did their 10-minute self-regulation technique that they would focus on. um, For their students, there was a different set of techniques for pre-K through second grade, and then a different set for third through five. But it was built into the master schedule so that every day at the same time, this is what people are doing um, for the calm classroom moment. And then we also had the SCL zones of regulation uh, portion built into the master schedule. Each grade level did have um, a different time in which they taught. I would add on to what Andrew's already advised that um, when we implement a social emotional curriculum, it's just as serious as a reading curriculum or a math curriculum. So you have to build in the coaching support. You have to make sure you have time on your schedule to go in and observe and provide feedback um, to teachers. And then also when you have your larger school meetings, How are you weaving that learning into your community meetings with your students? Are you talking about the things they're learning in the SEL program that you've purchased? And then what are you saying in your school newsletter? Are you putting that piece of information into the school newsletter so that the parents also um, have access to that? And I agree with Andrew, we did a couple after school sessions to introduce our parents to the zones of regulation curriculum so that they would be able to understand the students processing when they would say, I'm in the the yellow zone today, I'm not feeling it. And they expound on that. And that helped for some parents who decided to attend. Um, But you also need that piece in there too, the parent education
0: part. I I love that. And, um, you know, I want to make sure we have time to talk about One of the things I feel is really important with this, and that's like, how do we ensure that mental health support is accessible and equitable for all student populations? When you mentioned like parent communication, Tiffany, it reminded me of how Andrew, you previously said that you were dealing with a population that maybe stigmatized mental health a little bit. So it was sort of hard to have that open communication with parents and that full buy-in from the community. Can you talk to us about how you overcame that?
1: Yeah. So I'll speak mainly to the school I led in South LA, uh, predominantly a Latinx community that were either first gen or new immigrants and a Black African American community. Uh, you know, I'm a first generation American and I know my parents do not want to hear about all the struggles. They're like, oh, you just need to work harder. Okay, cool. Um, that's basically how that goes. Um, and I know some of the communities share that. So I think one is we had to ensure that parents knew very clearly what we were doing and that we understood what their concerns were. Uh, so before we launched anything around mental health, parents knew the students were struggling and they knew uh, that schools were were struggling to support them. Uh, we held several smaller focus groups, not large comprehensive town halls, but small partnering with my parent coordinator and like one counselor. Can we schedule these throughout the day? We and now know they all have computers at home, so we can do some of these virtually. Um, so to make it more accessible for parents, make sure we have people available in English. And we said, hey, here are some things we are thinking of rolling out. What concerns do you have? And at the end of the day, parents just want to be ensured that one, that they are kept informed if their student is struggling. And two, that we are not being invasive. Um, like getting super clear for parents on like, here is what we do if your student shares certain kinds of information with us. Here's how we keep you in the loop if we ever have concerns or are unsafe. Um, we are not licensed clinical therapists. We are not going to have your student, you know, be put on medication, like you will continue to have a say in everything that all that follow up looks like. Uh, so I think by taking our time and demystifying it, having a chance to hear what their concerns were authentically. And then when we officially rolled out our program here, are the, like we, it was a whole slide. Here's what you told us you are most worried about. Here's what we are doing to mitigate that. Um, not all of them are going away, like there are still times where we will have to maybe call somebody else if your child really, really needs help. But but this is a true partnership. It's not something that's happening to you. This is not you are ultimately the parent. We are not trying to replace you. Our number one goal is to make sure that your student is safe and happy and healthy and is able to access school. Uh, so it it did take time and there were still some folks who were very, very reluctant to allow their students to participate. But over time, as As word got out and students, I think in particular, started talking about, oh, I got to go to this social group with this person or, or, oh, I'm part of Mr. Vega's morning breakfast group, who is my special group of friends who just needed a, a kickstart to their day. I think when parents started to understand, like a vast majority of students are just getting a little extra help in a very low risk way that is just enough to get them through their day or through their week. Uh, we found a more on board. And then for students who did need significant care, they already knew the process and they were ready for it.
0: I think breakfast with Mr. Vega is such a nice idea. I feel like that's something that every administrator could do and like kids love that. So that's an amazing idea. Um, it's, I know also her- a great,
1: it's a great way to get out of morning dew, friends. Just a high <laughs> recommendation.
0: That's so true. true. That's a good point. Tiffany, I want to make sure that since this is sort of your wheelhouse, since, you know, your doctoral research was focused on inequity in education, um, I would love for you to chime in here as well.
3: Um, so I think one of the other things that I've mentioned is uh, programming for SEL, such as like the after-school yoga that we did. And we really focused on doing this um, during the pandemic because we saw that there was such a huge need. Uh, We had switched to virtual school and we felt so disconnected as a school community. Um, So we did contract uh, with the local yoga fitness center in our area to provide online yoga classes. And we join them as a community and so we would have parents we would have students we would have staff and we heavily promoted it um, to make sure that we are meeting our needs and making sure that we're providing supports for just for everyone and not just the students but also the adults because as it was mentioned earlier um, supporting teachers with understanding how to support students emotional needs is just as important because one of the things we also found is We have a great SEO curriculum. We're teaching all these great strategies. But if we keep triggering our kids, they're going to be dysregulated all day. And so we have to also learn how not to trigger children and how to regulate ourselves as adults in the environment so that we're not adding to that stress. Um, I think a couple other things that we did uh, to create community was we it was called Eagle Buddies but it was simply pairing up one grade level with the with the other and once a month they would spend about an hour and a half engaging in just a team builder activity, Um, because what we discovered also was that we just, it's hard to create community if you're isolating each other. You stay in your classroom all day, your kids stay in that classroom all day, and they're walking past students in their hallway that they don't know. And I think one of the reasons why small schools that have like 120 or 150 kids are so Effective and have such strong communities because the kids know each other. And I was a student who was in a very small school from kindergarten through eighth grade, and I knew all of those kids in my class. We had one grade level per one class per grade level. We were the same group of kids every year, and we had no issues. If there was a fight, it was a big deal, and we all tried to problem solve it because we were a community. And so, you have to find ways in larger schools to create community and create structures where kids interact with kids that they don't talk to every day. We also had school families and those were led by um, staff members and we purposefully on the school family team. We had a person from a student from every grade level on their school family team and a staff member, even our custodians, we involved in this, um, who would lead an activity and we did that quarterly. And again, the purpose of that was getting to know people who go to school with you that you don't see every day to build that community.
0: I love that. Yeah. I mean, community and connections, you know, we can't have mental health without that, right? We can't exist in a silo and expect to have a positive outlook. It's, it's just, it's impossible. Well, speaking of that, let's end on a positive note and maybe talk about any type of anecdote that sort of, you know, just sort of speaks to mental health. Maybe something that you saw about like an adult showing growth or a student showing how emotionally Um, sound that they are. So I don't know. Marie, do you have anything? I feel like I haven't heard from you in a few minutes. No, I'm sitting here enjoying the
2: conversation. I just wanted to talk about a story. When I moved back here from uh, overseas, I used to live in the Middle East. Um, And when I first came back in 2017, Um, I noticed the conditions of uh, schools changing and um, mental health issues. And I was in a fifth grade classroom and I had two students that had um, previously been retained the year before. And so, you know, I was told that the students never went into the class. They never wanted to go to class. They just stood outside the classroom and they were very defiant. So here I am coming back from the Middle East. So now I'm having to transition. I'm going through all these emotions because now I'm not used to being in American school anymore. Um, and so, I have the two students and I'm like, I I don't know how I'm gonna reach these students. And one of the students always wore his hoodie. He was getting in trouble a lot for wearing a hoodie, having the hoodie on his head. And so one day I decided to come home and I said, listen, Marie, what is your ultimate goal? To fight over a hoodie or to educate the student? To get them to be productive citizens when they get out of this school? Um, And after I had that self-talk with myself, I came into school the next day and I took him out in the hallway and I said, listen, I don't want to fight about this hoodie because I realized that was his coping mechanism. Whenever he had stress, whenever he was feeling, you know, overwhelmed, he would put the hoodie over his head and he would put his head down. So I realized that was the way that he dealt with issues. So I said, listen, I don't care if you keep this hoodie on. I don't care if you put the hoodie on your head. You can do that inside the classroom as long as you're working. But outside in the hallways and we're going to different places um, throughout the school because this is a school rule, you won't be able to put the hoodie on your head. Do we have an agreement? And his face just kind of lit up. He was like, yes, we have an agreement. And from that day forth, I built a relationship with that student. He was coming in the classroom. The other student was coming in the classroom. And I think building classroom community is so essential. If you want to really reach your students and be effective, you have to build classroom community. You have to build a school community um, as an administration. And you have to show as an administrator that you're involved in the school community and be visible. Um, And after establishing that classroom community, I never had a problem or issue out of my students because I would talk to them about things other than their behavior. I talked to them about things that they were interested in, things that they liked to do, things that they wanted to be when they grew up. Um, And I think if you take the focus off of behavior issues and place it on something positive that's helping or, or things that students are interested in, it will make for a better atmosphere, it will make students feel more safe and secure to know that they have at least one adult in the building that they can talk to, that they can rely on, that they can turn to when they're having an issue. Um, And hopefully you'll take um, something away from that. Um, Just building community all around is so important.
0: I think that's, that's a beautiful way to end this. Just it's about making connections. It's about being that one adult that is really making that true, genuine connection with the student, because they say that that's all it takes sometimes is just having one adult in your corner. So thank you so much, Marie, Andrew, Tiffany. This has been amazing. Have a good afternoon. Thank you so much for listening to Lessons Learned. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, or share. And for more content created with educators in mind, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at betterlesson.com backslash the learning curve. Until next time.